0: Hello and welcome back to The Great Woman Artist Podcast. Last week we interviewed the fantastic painter Jenna Gribben, and this week we deep dive into the life and work of the German expressionist Katakulwitz with Dr Dorothy Price. But before we get into this, I am delighted to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House, where doors will open on the 17th of November for the public viewing of the upcoming auction, The Collection of Lord and Lady Weinstock. Featured in the sale is Portrait of a Young Girl by marie Elizabeth Lemoyne, who belonged to an unusually tight network of female artists in 18th century Paris, including her sister, Marie-Victoire Lemoyne, and cousin jean Elizabeth Chaudet, marie Elizabeth is now known to be the younger woman sketching in her sister's painting of 1789, interior of an atelier of a woman painter, now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. This was not exhibited until 1796 when revolutionary reforms allowed women artists access to the Académie Royale. Portrait of a Young Girl is one of only a few works that can be attributed to marie Elizabeth with certainty. The painting and more are on view at Christie's King Street Gallery Space from the 17th to 21st of November and will be live at auction on the 22nd of November. Entry is free and open to all and you can visit for more at christies.com for more information on this work and the auction. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone, and welcome to The Great Women Artists Podcast, with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is Dr. Dorothy Price, Professor of Modern and Contemporary Art and Critical Race Art History at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. Dorothy Price is an indefatigable pioneer. Not only has she been instrumental as a specialist in German Expressionism, Weimar culture and Black British art, with a specific focus on women artists, but she has authored numerous books and articles in both areas. She is a fellow of the British Academy and editor of the journal Art History, and as her role as a curator, she has curated two shows with the brilliant artist and friend of ours, Chantal Joffe, in addition to other, as yet still secret, curatorial projects in the pipeline. But today we are meeting because her latest exhibition, Making Modernism, opens at the Royal Academy of Arts in London this month focusing on a group of women artists, all of whom were active in Germany in the first few decades of the 20th century. The exhibition seeks to look again at the histories of modernism through the eyes of its female practitioners and is the first group exhibition of women artists at the Royal Academy for over 20 years. So today we are going to be discussing one of these artists, Kata Kolwitz, the pioneering German expressionist who documented through a socially conscious lens the working classes and unemployed and was a master at capturing the emotive intensity of her subjects, their vulnerabilities and hardship. Dorothy Price, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing very well, Katie. Thank you so much for such a lovely introduction. <laughs> So this conversation has been years in the making because really you could also speak on so many artists. I mean, I could do a whole series interviewing you on the extensive knowledge that you possess. But today we speak about Colvitz and I am thrilled because Colvitz is probably up there as one of the greatest artists of all time. The raw emotion that comes through her work is unlike any other. The pathos, the empathy she gives her sitters through her etchings, woodcuts and lithographic prints is filmed with such intensity that it's impossible, I think, not to have this visceral reaction when you are confronted with her work. So I want to start by asking you, how do you feel when you are confronted with a
1: work by Katakulvitz? Oh, overwhelmed, actually, Katie. The beauty of them, the technical skill, whether she's working in etching, lithography, woodcut, sculpture. Her drawings, to me, I think, are the most emotional that I get when I stand in front of a drawing. It was really important to me that for making modernism, we brought a lot of drawings. We have etchings as well, but I think it was really important to show another side of Colvitz, which was through these very emotionally wrought and beautifully executed drawings.
0: Absolutely, I cannot wait for this exhibition. But you're right, like, the idea of drawing as well, it's such an immediate medium. Yeah. That rawness, you can almost feel Colvitz's body placing pencil to paper or something when you see these works.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and just tracing the line of her finger. So there's a particular drawing which I'm absolutely in love with. It's the drawing of a head of a child being cupped by its mother's hands. And it's a study for a larger print cycle that was never realised, but the drawing itself is just so beautiful. And it's kind of timeless, the emotional sort of tenderness of this sleeping child's head, eyes are closed, and just lolling slightly, and the mother just supporting it. And that's all you see of the mother. It's mainly focused on the child's face and these hands cupping her, and it's so beautiful.
0: Totally. I mean, I'm just seeing this work for the very first time. And it's extraordinary the way that she really emphasises the touch Mm. between the hand and the head. It's like she kind of presses down on the pencil to almost enhance that tenderness or touch.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And what's also really kind of moving to me is that because obviously the image of death features quite a lot in her work and poverty and hunger and the focus on the innocence of children caught up in social poverty... This drawing hovers between sleep and death, which is really common in Colvert's work and her drawings of children. And there's no indication in the title, of course, whether we're seeing a child on the brink of death or just a child asleep. It's that sort of instability of the state in which the child is in and the cupping of its head by the mother's hands. Also with Colvitz, is like she
0: presents these such raw emotions to us that also feel timeless. Like, although it was made in 1900, I mean, it applies to the world today.
1: Yeah, I think that's the other thing in terms of how powerful her art is because she expunges background detail, particularly in her drawings, and the more and more she sort of hones her print technique, the more she just loses the background detail and focuses literally on that moment of touch between usually women and children. She's drawing both on her own experience as a mother, but also drawing on the women who visited her husband Carl's surgery and the conditions that they lived in. These were factory workers, often women who had multiple children and also had to work and had real problems caring for their children financially. And so their struggles were real, and she witnessed that. And so that comes through a lot in the way in which she thinks about mother's burdens I think. Totally and also what I love about it is that fact that you
0: know you as a mother me not as a mother it's like I kind of put myself in the child's point of view in a way because I've never held my own child so I think what I love about Colvertz's work is I know
1: that it's going to speak to me so differently at different stages of my life. (laughs) Yeah I think that's right and I think that mother-child bond that she's so good at Working through and not in any kind of sentimental way, I think that's a key as well. It's really as close as you can get to conveying that inner emotion in a visible way. And I think that's what her greatness is, actually, in terms of her ability to draw.
0: So when did you first discover Colvitz and what were your immediate reactions?
1: Wow, that's a good question, Katie. (laughs) cast back (laughs) back into my kind of muddled old mind um I suppose so my mother's German and I spent a lot of time in Germany as a child and German art galleries have always in a different way from British ones there was always a kind of after the second world war a deliberate cultural decision to promote modernity to promote all of that work that had been declared degenerate under the National Socialists. And so lots and lots of regional museums have the most brilliant collections of German modernism all over Germany. And so I spent a lot of time in northern Germany, in Wuppertal, went to the von der Heidt Museum quite a lot. So I think I must have seen Colwitz there. And then I went to the University of Leicester and Leicester Museum and Art Gallery has the best collection of German expressionism in this country. In that collection, they had various works by Colwitz, including a really large-scale framed plate of one of the prints from the Peasants' War cycle. They had the prisoners, and I was really moved by this print. These sad-looking prisoners, all bundled together like sardines, kind of utterly defeated... And it was a really immediately visceral emotional response to this work of kind of real sort of tragedy of a human condition. This is why I'm so
0: excited for this exhibition, because what the German Expressionists did is they just conveyed this rawness. I mean, what draws you to the
1: German Expressionists? I think lots of reasons. One of them, I think, is to do with how undervalued they have been. Been within British scholarship. So, obviously, as an academic art historian, I needed to sort of find a research project because I could speak German and I was familiar with a lot of German art. And I realized that sort of the way in which art history was structured was not at all interested in German art, which is odd because, you know, the founding art historians came from Germany. But I think the issue. It was really again to do with the second world war and to do with anglo-german relations for so long where german art was just not considered within the purview of british art criticism and art history so i saw an opening mm-hmm. <laughs> and i thought because i've spent so much time with this work at leicester and in my own life and i felt that you know so much of the scholarship was in german and if you couldn't read german you wouldn't know anything about these women and so i kind of made it my mission to make german women artists more available in the english language
0: but with We're so grateful to you that you have done because also I think it's that turn-of-the-century German expressionism but also going into the sort of 20s, the Weimar era. It's just the most sort of electric palpable work there is. I mean, especially kind of Weimar era, these women who have just got the vote, this sort of exploration of gender and sexuality and freedoms and independence and liberation. It's just in there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so fascinating, particularly the 20s, because exactly as you say, you know, they get the vote, they're holding down the home front. Men come back. There's lots of widows, obviously because of the First World War and, and the loss of all the kind of fallen soldiers in the First World War. And women really have to kind of forge their own way. And there's also a lot of backlash against it too. And so that's what's really interesting is that tension between this kind of ideal, an idea of the new woman, the young independent new woman wearing dresses above the knee, having short haircuts, smoking, being all independent. But equally, you know, the law in Germany is still enshrined in the pre-war era. It's still enshrined in laws that say that if women get married, then everything belongs to their husband abortion becomes an issue for women in the 20s. There's paragraph 218 that Colvitz also makes a poster against which illegalises abortion. It's a paragraph that's left over from the imperial legislation and so there's a massive backlash in 1928 against this clause.
0: Wow. So Colvitz was sort of living in such an interesting time I mean she was born in July 1867 in Konigsberg in Eastern Prussia which is now Kaliningrad in Russia. She was the fifth of seven children with only four living beyond childhood and her family were very progressive. They were members of the free evangelical community where women had voting rights. I mean, tell us about her family and her upbringing.
1: Yeah, she was particularly lucky, actually, in terms of how supportive her parents were. She had sisters as well, and, you know, they were massively supportive of the women in the family, and they encouraged her desire to be an artist, and they paid for art lessons. She always had that sort of approval from her family, She also went through quite a lot of anxiety as a child because of the death of her siblings. One of her brothers, I think, died. And so I think her family meant a lot to her and their support in particular and their their teaching. They're kind of in the intellectual milieu of the family. You know, they were readers. They had a deep knowledge of German history. And she carries that with her when she makes... Peasant's War that's very much drawing on that cultural intellectual background that she knows from German history. The Peasant's War originally stems from a 16th century book about the peasant's revolt. It's written about in the 1840s when there's all sorts of chartist uprisings across Europe and so it becomes back into consciousness and her family are very much part of that circle. Thereafter suffrage for women thereafter rights for workers there after all those kind of socially progressive parts that were just not available in German society at that time and so they that's what they believed in and so she carried that with her
0: mm. i mean it's so interesting you know being instilled with these values of social duty and egalitarianism from a really young age i mean it totally translates to her art and i'm aware that her father was also a stonemason and like you said support of the education of his children including his daughters and from age 14 you know she had her first art lessons learning engraving under the support of her parents I mean this must have been so
1: progressive for the time it must have been the kind of early 1880s at this point yeah it's interesting isn't it Katie because you know you think about all the successful women in history in in terms of art production and they all are successful because they have support of family members and it's usually their fathers sometimes their brothers but you know think of Artemisia right If you have the right support, and this is kind of still pertains to date, doesn't it? If you have the right familial support, you can achieve anything. Anyone can achieve anything. You know, this shows in these histories of these women artists, if they have the right support, despite the kind of legal frameworks in which they have to operate, they can still be successful. It's so true. And between 1886 and 1888, she then
0: trained in portrait painting at the Academy for Women Artists in Berlin. First of all, as a woman, like you said, she's got familial support. But I mean, how easy was it for women to even have an education at this time?
1: I think increasingly it was becoming more easy for women in Germany, but in a very particular way. So if you wanted to be an artist in Germany, there was an increasing sense that you could go and learn photography. Photography was thought to be okay as a profession because... Conventional wisdom was that women should go into nursing, right? And so if you learn photography, you could start to operate the X-ray machine. And so that's why in the 20s, coming back to the 20s, you have these enormous, talented and trained professional photographers who are women because their families accept that photography is okay as a professional entry point into medical and care work uh, because of the invention of the X-ray machine, which happened in Germany in 1895. So (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so fascinating. But also this idea that photography
0: has no patriarchal history to it as well. It's like this new medium. And so many women artists actually pioneered that at the start of the twentieth century. Yeah,
1: because it was thought to be, you know, you recorded stuff, you could operate the X ray machine perfect
0: oh my god fascinating (laughs) fascinating when she attended the academy for women artists in munich she was then allowed to enter the life drawing classes and paint from the nude study the nude i mean again you know thinking about the opening of the Slade in the 1870s or Mm. the royal academy of art in the 1890s giving women access to the life room i mean this was this massive turning point in art history what do you think studying the life model gave her
1: oh i think it It gave her everything in the same way that it gave Paloma Zombeka everything when she went to Paris and went to the Academy Colorossi and and did private lessons because often women could study from life but it had to be private and it was often other women that they studied rather than men in the nude But, I mean, it gives them everything, doesn't it? Because, you know, if you understand the human body and the anatomy of the human body, you're able then to kind of run with it and express what you need to express. And you can see that in all of her drawings, actually, and in her print cycles. And in 1903, Woman and Dead Child, the woman is so kind of muscular. And you can really see how she understands The muscular makeup of a human body, no question. And then there's some really interesting studies. It's a series of studies and it's a self portrait head of Colvitz, just her head, and she's overlaid it onto a nude female torso. And it's a really interesting drawing because it seems to me to speak to this mind body split that she is having to overcome as a woman artist, in terms of what does it mean to be a woman artist in this sort of patriarchal structure where the female nude is the kind of calling card of modernism and the female nude is a kind of objectified female nude. What does that mean for a woman artist? How can a woman artist then enter the fray of modernism without kind of succumbing to the objectification of themselves? And this particular drawing seems to me a really telling Sort of sense in which she's resisting this female prostrate nude ideal for representation for women at the time, and she's kind of saying, "No, this is me, and I'm an artist, and I'm going to do things differently." And so again, for her, the female nude is all about the maternal nude. No question, it's it's a different kind of nude. You know, when the options open to you are either Madonnas, the idealized feminine, or the sexualized erotic nude. As a woman artist, you know, finding a different way in is what I think both she and Pallon and Becca managed to do in their focus on the nude. Because they understood how important the nude was within the history of art. They have a good education. They know what they're doing. They're really pioneering. They're finding a different way in. I mean, what you're saying is just bringing to light the complexity
0: of painting the nude in the history of art. This is where modernism begins. The woman's take on the nude body because of being objectified for so many centuries. I mean, it's just extraordinary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It seems to me it's about taking it back, right? so these are our bodies yes you've had all your fun looking at them painting them sexualizing them eroticizing them all the rest of it but we're also people we think and we have brains and this is what we're going to do with it and you know we understand that the body is important because it's the fundamental commonality across the world we're all bodies right but then how as a woman can I think about my body And what is it about my body that's special, you know, for Colvitz? Having married Carl and having her first child and then having her second child and still working all the way through all of this. You know, her maternal body develops and her body changes. And she sort of explores that in a way, I think, in all of these nudes.
0: I mean, I love, you know, just coming back to the early works in 1889. She creates this gorgeous self-portrait and just like her sort of perceptiveness to the human figure and even the lips you can feel there's like flesh in the lips there is so much happening in these works I mean she's such a incredible analyzer of the human form and also I love the idea of painting a self-portrait as well she says don't hide yourself be the person you are and find your essence or she describes mm. them as a visual forms of soliloquy and I love that sort of exploration of the self as well
1: yeah I think it's amazing she produces about 100 self-portraits in her career across her life and again she is thinking about her place in the history of art no question it's kind of like well Rembrandt could do it I'm going to do it too right you know she looks at northern European art in particular she looks at Dürer in fact you know there are recordings in her diary of her going to visit the Gemelde Gallery in Dresden and her kind of studies of Dürer's hands and she has kind of struggles with them and she kind of turns off Dürer in the end which is quite funny (laughs) um (laughs) but but, you know uh, she's definitely thinking about Rembrandt when she starts a series of self-portraits and she starts it young like this is an early one yeah. but they carry all the way through all the way up to near her death yeah she's about 22 at this time and I love the idea of actually
0: when you're 22 making a self-portrait and saying this is my place in the world yeah, this is what I, I want am. to say exactly yeah. But in 1890, she got her own studio in Königsberg. Was it around this time that she actually began to focus on printmaking? And what is the
1: power of using printmaking? Ah, Okay, so she was really interesting in terms of her choice of focusing on printmaking only. So she had a Swiss teacher called Karl Stauffer-Bern, who introduced her to the writings of Max Klinger, who was already making prints in the late 19th century. And Klinger published a treatise called Painting and Drawing and she read this treatise and she was still making works in colour at this point. She'd been to Paris and at this point she was kind of influenced by the colours and of Parisian art but she read Klinger's treatise and he made the point that painting was good for sort of fictional things but that graphic work, work in black and white was much more suitable for a political message. And so she really sort of took that on board. And and it was from that point, actually, reading... Klinger's text that she decided that she wanted to be a documenter of her times so she thought to do that most effectively I'm going to follow Klinger's advice and I'm going to work exclusively in black and white which she starts to do and and she really labours hard on these print cycles you know her first major print cycle a weaver's revolt she really struggles actually getting her medium and in the end she produces this really powerful print cycle. Based on Gerhard Hauptmann's play. Gerhard Hauptmann, novelist, poet, playwright in the late 19th century in Germany. And she abandons what she is doing, working on a series from Zola's Germinal. So she's already interested in kind of naturalist literature that is also documenting the conditions of the working classes, which Zola's Germinal is. But she's still in the realm of literature when she's doing this. And she sees Gerhard Hauptmann's play which is actually an allegory of actually some political events that were going on at the time in Germany and she sees this it's an instant hit it's censored by the authorities because they regard it as attacking class status which it kind of is you know it's he's saying that the social structure in Germany at the time is unjust you have all the people with power and money at the top and uh, all these poor people who have to do factory work and grind who have no health care who live in abject conditions and so Hauptmann's play is a sort of allegory of certain revolutions that were happening in Germany in the rural areas. And so it's seen as that, even though it's a fiction, it's seen actually as a political commentary. And so she takes that, she seizes on that, and then she makes her Weaver's Revolt in response to the um, Hauptmann. And although it's put forward for a gold medal at the great German art exhibition by other artists, the Kaiser refuses her the medal. She's not allowed to have it because he calls what she does gutter art. He regards art as something that should be escapist, basically. He thinks art should just be pretty and escapist and that, you know, no one wants to see all this gutter art about these poor people. (laughs) So, yes, I I I think that just just stokes her up even more, obviously, you know, to realise that she's doing the right thing by focusing on the underprivileged in her work.
0: Totally, and this idea of actually using prints as this also accessible and cheap material that people can actually own themselves. And also, the background that she's working in, it's set against Berlin's port and this sort of rapidly industrialising area. And like you said in The Weaver's Revolt, I mean, one of my favorite i mean the work that i find the most moving in this series is called despair which is a lithograph of a dark cramped room featuring what appears to be a mother in despair who sort of grasps her head in yeah. her hand while looking over at her sleeping baby and you can feel her agony in this i've only seen it in small reproductions but with Colbert's work as well you really have to sort of look at it closely
1: to really find out what the scene is and you look at this mother and you can feel her agony absolutely it's in a really powerful start to that cycle you know and it really is very very clearly in black and white literally Sort of saying, this is why these people are having a revolution. This is why these people are protesting. This is why they're rioting. Because of this injustice, how can they feed their children? When you're paying them so poorly and treating them so badly, they have no money. So this is need, you know, this is the despair, the mother's despair. You know, she says, you know, I want my art to serve a purpose.
0: Yes. And I think because of that, it sort of transmutes like across time, cultures, everything.
1: I mean, it's almost as though these people, they kind of fill in for the every person. I think that you've hit the nail on the head there, actually, Katie, because even though they're tied to specific narratives they do transcend that because that idea of poverty and desperation and hunger and injustice are, you know, global themes, right? Mm. And I think that's why her work has such resonance. And it has been massively influential on other artists, people like Elizabeth Catlett, for example, cites Colvitz yes. as one of her major influences because of the way in which she grapples with these universal conditions of suffering and poverty, right and injustice and brings them to the surface and makes them visible and by doing that you're kind of affecting change right? she
0: gives people a voice through her art
1: yeah definitely yeah and and that quote I think you're after where she says uh, I want my art to have an effect on these times yes yes, it's a great quote and it demonstrates her commitment to what she's doing yeah I love this she says I felt
0: that I have no right to withdraw from the responsibility of being an advocate it is my duty to voice the sufferings of men the never-ending sufferings heaped mountain high this is my task but it is not an easy one to fulfill
1: no indeed it is not an easy one to fulfill but she spends her entire life doing it and working with it And what I love about her is that she spends her entire life doing it from a female perspective. Yes. Right? It's always about the mothers, the children, the women, the widows. It's always about the woman's condition.
0: And and that (laughs) sort of makes me a bit emotional in the sense that that has been shut out from the history of art for hundreds of years before that.
1: Yeah, indeed. And on such a kind of powerful scale, she does it, but she does it with such aplomb. And such technical skill. And she works so hard all her life and
0: raises her family. But in the early 1900s, she created another series, which was Peasants' War from 1902 to 1908. I mean, how do you think she captured the war differently, particularly this war, different Uh, to artists
1: of the past? Again... Absolutely, from the female perspective, right? The thing that prompts the war from Colvett's perspective is not just generic poverty and injustice, it's a specific event. It's the discovery of one of the peasant girls who's been raped in the second print of the cycle, which is called Raped. And it's really difficult to make out unless you see this work. Yeah, because there's the foliage around it, yeah. right? Then there's a yeah. the body. So yeah. if you see it in reproduction. It's quite difficult to make it out, but if you see the actual work, it becomes much clearer, but I think it's deliberate. You see the woman's kind of prone body after the rape. You don't see who did it, you just see her as a victim. And there's actually also a child looking over a gate to where she's been left, and he's obviously the boy who goes and reports it, and then they all just say enough is enough. And it's that injustice of power, isn't it? And, you know, it's not just a sort of allegorical rape, it's not a rape of Europa, it's not a sort of Susanna and the Elders, which is a horrible scene as well. It's about the woman, it's not about the people who are doing it to her specifically, although it is about that, that whole thing is about that, but it's about this is what you leave her with, right? This is how she is after you've gone and had your way, and how dare you? Completely.
0: And just, again, this sort of timelessness with her work, because... It speaks to today. It speaks to people around the world. You mentioned it earlier, but for me, the most powerful work of all is Woman with Dead Child from 1903, And I genuinely think this is the most emotional work in the history of art. I mean, when I look at it, I just want to cry. And I know that in different stages of my life, again, when I eventually have children, it will speak to me on a completely other level. And it's of this mother whose head is buried in her child's body, and you can almost hear her cries, feel the tears literally sink into her skin, and the head is almost marble-like. Yeah. Like, it's it's sculptural.
1: She's trying to kind of almost re-ingest the child, isn't she? Yes. Because the mouth is kind of so pressed into his face. It's almost like she's sucking him back in, trying to give him life again. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit like sort of collapse. Mm, it's complete, utter, raw grief, isn't it? Yeah. It's, which is amazing, you know, and the muscularity and the kind of marble-like head you're drawing on. I mean, she spent some time in Rome. She won a prize, and no question she saw Michelangelo's Pietà. But again, what I love about it is that transformation from that idea of the Pieta which is also a beautifully emotional work in a much more I guess restrained emotional way Mm. than the Michelangelo whereas she takes that restrained emotion and she really ramps it up and makes a completely different kind of work she makes it human yeah and also uh, secularizes it yeah exactly so it becomes real as we've said before about her work she removes her themes which are universal but she removes them from this idealization and makes them relatable even now that's such a relatable work as you say i don't think there's a there's a better depiction of of raw grief in the history of art from my perspective anyway I completely agree, but this work was sadly
0: prophetic as her son, Peter, who actually modelled as the boy, Mm. later died
1: when he was age 18 on the front line. Yeah, that's a really, really dark episode in Colbert's life because she feels so guilty because like all German people, Germany had been kind of warmongering since about 1912, actually. It had been in the press, it had been the growth of the Navy and their resources, and there was this sort of sense, a kind of Nietzschean sense in the cultural milieu of the period that in order to sort of break away from the old guard, you had to have a complete destruction of the old guard in order to create a new. And so naively, so many artists in this pre-1914 era Not just Kollwitz, lots of artists thought that the war was the right thing to do. They read Nietzsche. Nietzsche had thus Spake Zarathustra. Zarathustra was a prophet and he was an artist. And Zarathustra, in Nietzsche's thinking, was the only person who knew the truth. So, of course, this was immediately electric to all the artists of the period. Otto Dix, Kirchner, Kollwitz, Paolo and Beckett, they all read Nietzsche. It was like, I don't know, the equivalent of reading the story of art without men, Katie. (laughs) Thank you very much, Dot. And so there was this naivety. They had no idea about trench warfare. They had no idea about gas. They'd never had a war like this before. So they all thought, oh, yeah, war, we'll just have a quick fight and it'll all be over and we can start again. And so she actively encouraged Peter to sign up. Hence, he was 18 And, and he wanted to and she encouraged it. She supported him, whereas Carl didn't. He didn't want him to go. This is a husband who's a doctor, yeah. right? Yeah, he didn't want Peter to go. So oh. this was a major issue in their family, yeah. obviously. And, of course, when he dies, within weeks, pretty much, of signing up, and, as you say, he's 18, he dies, she's just beside herself. She's racked with guilt. There's tension in the family. She spends the rest of her kind of, well, the next kind of 20-odd years trying to find the right kind of monument to memorialise that loss and that grief. And the parents ends up as the monument, but on the way to that journey of that big stone monument that's eventually installed in Rockefeller Cemetery in Belgium as a memorialisation to all the fallen, the German fallen, on the way, all her work now becomes affected with her trying to grapple with that grief through her work. Mm.
0: I mean, it's extraordinary because Hans Colwitz, who was Peter's brother, said in 1966, I asked mother where she got the image of the mother with her dead child from years before the war, which featured in almost all her pictures from that period. She thought she foresaw Peter's death even then. She said she had been crying while working on these images.
1: Oh, wow. So moving. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. You know, it's obviously coincidental that Peter models for it, but it has become a sort of mythologised thing because it is so prophetic in a way. And also after this one's made, and she does a whole series of works from about 1910 onwards of women and dead children in different formats, because Hans has diphtheria in 1908, serious diphtheria, and it's touch and go for him. And so she sees the almost loss of hands first Mm. in 1908 as a child. And then, as we know, in 1914, Peter dies. And then tragically, her grandson, Peter, dies in the Second World War.
0: Oh, my goodness. Wow. I mean, it's also kind of incredible that she perhaps could turn to art as well for that redemptive power. But to look at the more positive side of things, in 1904, she travelled to Paris for two months and took classes at the Académie Julienne. A year later, she exhibited at the Paris Salon. And then in 1912, in the print room of New York Public Library, she had her first ever solo exhibition in the US. Was she beginning to gain recognition for her work at this point?
1: Yeah, I mean, as soon as she was nominated for the gold medal, by Adolf Mensel. She has this network of like solid supporters and patrons from a really early age, because the work shines through, the talent of that work in graphic, there's no one comparable. You know, to my mind, she outstrips Klinger, who's her great influencer. She's making very different kind of work from de Brucker, who also turned to woodcut, but she doesn't turn to woodcut till later. You know, there is no one comparable at this time. And the uh, British Museum collects early. Campbell Dodgson collects her work. And that's why the British Museum has such a good collection of her work, unusually in this country. They have the best runs, eight of them I think, of Woman with Dead Child in all different formats and colours and yeah, amazing.
0: But although her work was filled with images that drew on social consciousness and death and grief and mourning, in 1913 she made this beautiful sculpture called The Lovers. In a way, yes. I remember Celia Paul saying every love story is a grief story, but actually with grief comes love. And this beautiful sculpture of these two figures just completely embracing mm. each other. I mean, you feel that as well. I mean, it's not just these agonizing emotions. It's pure ecstasy as well
1: with the lovers. Yes. There's this brilliant undercurrent in Colvitt's practice <laughs> around erotic love <laughs> and ecstasy, which, again, I love because it's so not the kind of received histories of mm. art that are about female sexual desire rather than male sexual desire. And that's what I love about this sculpture, but also her series of Secreta drawings. She makes a series of drawings that she calls her Secreta, her secret drawings. Oh, wow in 1910, because, rumour has it, she has an affair with a Viennese Jewish bookseller, Hugo Heller, who also has a little gallery and a publishing house, and he's really big in the kind of Viennese intellectual circles. He's a founder member of the Wednesday Society. The Wednesday Society is a society where Freud first tests out his lectures on psychoanalysis. And he, he shows, obviously, Uh, culvertis prince in his shop uh, and in his gallery and they have an affair exciting yes (laughs) yes and so she does these drawings and she writes about them in her diary and she says i went through my portfolios once more many many very poor and mediocre works only the portfolio of death Two contains some beautiful sheets and of course the secreta which however i won't sell or show I don't know what will happen to them after my death. And those are from her diaries in April 1920. I feel slightly guilty because we're bringing a couple to oh, the Royal Academy. I can't wait. <laughs> we think they're the, her recordings of her affair and they're amazing. These like large scale and they're charcoal and they you can feel the line in, in what she's doing. them. You can kind of feel the eroticism and the, the lived remembering of the passion of that affair. And in fact, Hugo Heller's wife, Dies, I think in 1909, and he asks her to marry him. She's already married to Carl at this point. I know, and so she's at this crossroads. And she decides to stay with Carl because they have this strong bond and connection. And he obviously forgives her, and they kind of carry on, (laughs) you know. But she still did these drawings, and she dreams. You know, in her diaries are littered with references to these erotic dreams that are about Hella. Nothing explicit. This is the closest it gets. And these Secreta drawings were um, kept under lock and key in the Colvitz Museum in Cologne for many, many decades. They're not anymore, but they were because they were considered too sensitive.
0: But I just love the idea of making Secreta. I mean, Secreta sounds so much better than Secret, (laughs) so I'm going to call them Secreta. But I love the idea of creating these drawings in secret. You know, actually... When you create things in secret, that's when you put your most
1: personal and raw emotions in everything. Because yeah. you do it for yourself, you don't do it for anyone else. No, exactly. And it's like she's trying to hang on to this passion, right? Yes. Through these drawings. So she can't actually have the passion with Hella. So it's this erotic memory for her of this affair and this decision not to pursue it. And so it all goes into these, like, I think there's about 10 of them, I think, of lovers. And I think this sculpture comes out of that. But also, you know, with my art historical hat on, there's also the time she spent in <laughs> Rodin's studio as well. You know, so she uh, spends a lot of time in Rodin's studio. Rodin's very influential on her in the way that he is with lots of artists at this period. She's one of the people who writes one of his obituaries actually when he dies in 1917. Yeah, fascinating.
0: But I mean, when World War 1 did hit, In 1914, she briefly joined the Women's National Service, Mm. cooking and helping soldiers and the impoverished in the cities. Obviously the same year, Peter dies but it wasn't until 1921 that she actually made her landmark series Krieg War Mm. Uh, and she said in 1922 I have tried again and again to represent war I was never able to capture it now finally I have finished a series of woodcuts that come close to expressing what I have always wanted to express these prints should be sent all over the world and give everybody the essence of what it was like this is what we all went through during these unspeakably hard times how did she translate war through her work
1: yeah again so brilliant such a great perspective she does it all through the lens of the woman and the mother, the first place called Sacrifice. So you see this woman clutching her belly; she's pregnant.
0: This work looks so contemporary.
1: Yeah, like the
0: woman's even got like hoop earrings.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she knows that this seed, as Colvitz refers to it later, that this seed for growth shall not be milled, shall not be ground, is one of her major kind of mantras. You cannot grind up our children and spit them out. And that's the perspective from which all of the Krieg series is being made. You know, and it's about mothers really not wanting to give this up you know give their precious children up and that's what happens in war obviously women go to war too but in this period mainly men were being called up and so you had a young child and you knew it was going to get killed if it went to war she's doing this from her own Experience obviously, yeah. as well, with Peter, and that's so raw for her. So it is, it's a sacrifice, a mother's sacrifice. And then this one here, this the widow, too, she is just so distraught, lamenting. She is literally laid flat on her back by her grief with the death of both probably her husband, indeed, as her widow, and also probably her children. And this is what's so great about it, because it's all about the woman's perspective of war. And if you think about, I don't know, Otto Dix, and he has this massively powerful series on war as well, but it's a very masculinist perspective, and it's all about the soldier's perspective, and it is extremely powerful, but it has had so much dominance in the history of art. And actually, this is what's so brilliant about this series, is because, you know, war doesn't just affect men. And doesn't just affect the soldiers, it affects everybody. And it affects them emotionally. And so she's actually thinking about the women always. And then this Tower of Mothers, which she then translates also into sculpture. And her woodcuts and her sculptures are often quite comparable. So the Tower of Mothers, they're circling, they're protecting their children. They're saying you can't have them. I think what these works, and their woodcuts, so
0: also I should add for the audience who haven't seen these, that she's really reducing the line in her work. So these woodcuts, it's almost as though it's this kind of blacked out image and then she's scraping away these whites, merely just thick lines at this point. And I love the way that she can use like the white of an eye. The white of the eye like exudes that, like, you know, when you're so fearful of something Mm. that you're looking so intensely and you can feel that, like you can feel the intensity in these people's minds. But also what you're saying brings to light all the battle scenes we've seen in the history of art, right? For hundreds and hundreds of years, what she does is she looks beyond that. Yeah. And actually, I've never thought about that. I've never thought about all the families of all the people who have been involved in those battle scenes. Mm, mm,
1: indeed. It's obviously quite right to celebrate the fallen themselves, but it's also quite right to celebrate the ripple effect that all of that has. And that's what her work is so important because it brings a kind of holistic perspective to the idea of war, that this isn't just a man's battle, right? This is a battle about everybody, and everybody gets affected by it. And nobody has really thought about the women and the grief they have to bear. And they have to bear the grief and carry on. They bear the grief, but they also have to man the home front. So they have to do everything left behind, as it were. And also then when you
0: do see her self-portraits from the 20s and the 30s, I mean, she's not kind to herself. I mean no. This is a woman who is exhausted. Yes. And who is tired and is just angry about the war do you feel the weight of it through Mm. the agony and her expression
1: yes they're really interesting aren't they those later self-portraits because if you look at the photographs of her at the period she's often smiling Uh, and she doesn't look like this she's very she's unkind to herself (laughs) yeah very much so in a way these self-portraits become ciphers of the emotional grief right because they carry Literally etched on her face, totally. her sorrow, her losses, her sadness, her despair at the world, not just in her own personal life, but kind of globally. You know, she's empathetic to socialism and communism, She, although she was not a paid up member. And the Communist Party she does work for them. she'll do a few posters for them so they can raise some funds to help workers and because of that association through the Communist Party, which is quite global at this period, you know she's known in China, she's known in Russia, she's known in Mexico, hence Elizabeth Catlett knows of her. you know she is globally known as a fighter, as a justice fighter,
0: yeah. Completely. And I mean, whilst all this is going on, and you know, she's experienced all this sorrow, like you said, she is being known around the world. I mean, in 1927, an extensive solo exhibition she has at the Prussian Academy on the occasion of her 60th birthday. But then in 1933, the Nazis come to power. Mm. And so... What happened to her work
1: after this? So she was never included in the Degenerate Art Exhibition. When the Nazis came to power, a series of laws kept coming in to incrementally exclude Jewish people from any aspect of German life and society. Not just Jewish people, but also gay people, Romanese black people, just anybody who wasn't of the Aryan race, basically, in their definitions of the Aryan race, but also artists who they regarded as subversive, artists who didn't support the far-right cause, which of course is basically the whole of our funk art modernism. And so a lot of Artists under National Socialism were kind of gathered together, vilified. A massive exhibition was shown called Degenerate Art in 1937 in Munich. And it was opened the day after the official German art show opened. Hitler and the Nazi party really used the visual arts as part of their cultural propaganda machine. And so they said, well, we don't want any of this avant-garde modernist nonsense anymore. We're going to have all this National Socialist realism, like muscular area." Men, ideal German families, all the rest. of it. So they opened this horrible exhibition of official German art with these really awful paintings and sculptures in them. And then the day after, they opened the Degenerate Art exhibition, and all the kind of German avant-gardists were in it: Dix, Gros, uh, Kirchner. But what did happen was that the Gestapo came and trampled through our studio, basically. And Karl died in 1940. Her husband died in 1940, and after that, when the Gestapo raided her studio in the early 1940s, she couldn't stand it anymore. And then the Allied Air Force were bombing Berlin very hard, and in fact her studio was destroyed in an Allied air raid, and lots of work was destroyed too, but she'd got out in time, and she went to live in Moritzburg, but yeah, it was quite a hard end.
0: And in 1940 to 1941, she makes this extraordinary work called Farewell, Mm. Mm. which again is just such a potent title and work made after Carl's death. You know, she says, I'm working on a small group with the man, Carl, letting go of me, withdrawing from my arms. He lets himself
1: sink into the floor. So sad, isn't it? And they are, they're really again just beautifully emotional, (sighs) tragic works. And what I love about them is that they encapsulate that end of life kind of grief as well. It's not just about early loss of a child, which is obviously terrible and tragic and all rest of it, but actually, you know, as you get older you lose more and more people around you. She picks that up and she she captures it so beautifully. Yeah, she does. What do you think she's taught you? Uh, that it's okay to grieve, I think. That it's a normal part of everyday experience. And so
0: with the women in this Making Modernism exhibition, I mean, this exhibition is going to be groundbreaking. I mean, even I haven't seen so many Paula and and Beckers in the flesh. Similarly with Colvitz, I've only seen a handful in my life. How does she fit into this Making Modernism
1: narrative? So the whole show really, from my perspective, was to recalibrate how we think about modernism. My whole kind of pitch was, you know, what happens to our narratives and our stories of modernism if we just swing the camera around away from Kandinsky and Clay? And there are all these women making work. Making modernism is the tip of the iceberg of women who are making good work, excellent work, brilliant work at this period. And I've Hopefully, brought together some of the most well known. And also, you know, Colwitz is a household name in Germany, as is Paula Morzon-Becker. Gabriela Munter, slightly less so, but even so, much more well known. If they know any German women artists, they'll know Colwitz if we're lucky, and they might know Paula Morzon-Becker, but not the others. And so the show is about recalibrating our understandings of modernism. And I'm thinking about themes of modernism that all these artists engage in and just how that changes. How does that theme change if we look at it from a female perspective? So the show is structured around self-portraits. It's structured around networks of friendship groups. The section called The Century of the Child, which is about children and not in a sweet way (laughs) necessarily and how, you know, the ambivalence around children for women artists, you know, how they're going to have children and raise a family and work as women. Uh, This was a real, real struggle and question for a lot of them and some of them chose not to have children and to focus on their work and then city and country is one of the themes and then I finished with a section called Still Lives which is a kind of riff on the idea of the still life which was traditionally the genre that women were consigned to painting flowers and fruits and all the rest of it but I also wanted to convey this idea that after so much trauma that they all go through they have some really bad times all of them and so I wanted this kind of idea that they somehow find some peace somehow a sense of stillness in their lives so it's a sort of play on that final section is, is that's what that's about Dorothy
0: Price Thank you so much. I cannot wait to see this exhibition. I will be there on day one. Good. I honestly can't wait. And thank you for putting this exhibition together. And thank you for this extraordinary conversation on Colvitz. I know it's going to resonate with so many people. But we have one more question, Mm. which is, if you could speak to Colvitz, if you could ask her something or say something to her, what would it be?
1: Well, first of all, I'd have to say thank you for her work. I have so many questions I want to ask her, actually. I've obviously been thinking about this question a lot because I listen to your podcast, so I know this question comes. <laughs> <Thank> you, <Doc>. <laughs> <laughs> so I have two. Can I ask her two? Yes, of course. One of them is I'd really like to hear more about the whole Hugo Heller episode. Oh, yes, me too. And that decision. But the actual question I actually want to know is, and I can't find the answer to this anywhere, and I've looked and I've asked people... Did Colvitz and Paolo Mordeson-Becker ever meet? They were born both in Dresden. They both knew Gerhard Hauptmann. They both knew Rodin. They both spent periods of time in Paris. But they miss each other by a year every time. But they know the same people. So I mean, it's one of those really frustrating art historical questions and I'd love to know the answer.
0: Fantastic. Dr. Dorothy Price, thank you so much for coming on the Great Women Artists podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Katie, for giving me the opportunity. Thank you all so much for listening to this
0: episode of the Great Woman Artists Podcast with the brilliant Dr. Dorothy Price on the pioneering German expressionist, Kate Kolwitz. I am just in awe of Dot's words, but also urge everyone in London to see Dot's fantastic exhibition, Making Modernism at the Royal Academy of Arts, which is on view until the 12th of February, 2023. Seeing Kolwitz's work in the flesh is just such an incredible experience. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Sminelej and research assistant was Viva Ruji. As always, if you have been enjoying these episodes, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll see you next week for the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.